Hi, this is James Mercer from The Shins. This is Shirley Manson. This is Lowe Tolhurst, co-founder of The Cure. This is Huey Lewis giving you the story behind the song. The story behind the song is back with an exciting second season. We peel back the layers on music's most iconic hits with legendary artists like The Killers, Heart, The B-52s, Violent Femmes, Jewel, Huey Lewis, Modern English, and more. To keep the music flowing, we'll be sprinkling in classic episodes from our archives between each new one. So check out the story behind the song wherever you get your podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So you want to be a rock and roll star? No? Well, how about a podcast star? Well, as it turns out, there's a new all-in-one platform just for you. It's called Anchor, and it's the easiest way to make a podcast. And check this out. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And then Anchor will distribute the podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and, you know, everywhere else in, uh, in podcast land. And what's even better, you can actually make money from your podcast. Go figure. Uh, no minimum listenership on that. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So go ahead. Download the free Anchor app right now or go to anchor.fm to get started. So what are you waiting for? Podcast stardom is within your reach. It's easy to hear your favorite artist on WFPK from wherever you are. Listen on your smart speaker, live stream from our website at WFPK.org from Louisville Public Media. Consequence Podcast Network. And welcome to another edition of Kyle Meredith with the interview series presented by WFPK at WFPK.org. Consequence of Sound and the Consequence Podcast Network. I want to thank everybody who checks us out every single week and the new episodes, the new interviews. Uh, we release new ones every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So thank you for subscribing and thank you for the comments. Let me know where you're listening from. Questions about the interviews. Always appreciate uh, hearing from every single one of you. Of course, if you're not a subscriber, may I take this moment to entice you by saying you can get us at any of the uh, the popular spots, including iTunes and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcast from. Just type in Kyle Meredith with it. Subscribe. We'll take care of the rest. I'm Kyle Meredith, and today it's a doozy. I'm talking with Kim Thile of Soundgarden. Now, I've talked before about the importance of Soundgarden in my life, uh, especially the few times I've been able to talk to Chris Cornell before his passing, uh, just that they were the band. They were the band that changed my life. Uh, it, it happened, you know, back in middle school uh, when, when I heard the song Spoon Man, and that's that's why I'm here. So being able to talk to Kim, it, it's another big deal. And let me tell you, we cover a lot of ground, a whole lot of ground uh, on this interview. We start out because it's the 30th anniversary of the Screaming Life FOP compilation. Now, it's not the anniversary of those separate EPs because they did combine them to make a CD package in 1990. But before that, 
they were 80s EPs. We're still going to talk about that, though. We're going to talk a lot about discography uh, and how the band sees some of their albums versus uh, uh, the record label who put a lot of the stuff together uh, as well. But we'll start back in those early days. I want to talk about how and when they realized that their sound was different because Soundgarden was a very different band, uh, being influenced by their peers like the Melvins and Malfunction, as well as uh, classics like uh, Zeppelin and Sabbath, Kiss, and the Beatles. We'll hear about some of the songs like Little Joe, get into time signatures uh, before and after Matt Cameron. I know he plays a part of that as well. In fact, Kim tells us, uh, bringing in Matt Cameron, one of the things was they wanted everyone to be a songwriter, uh, and that kind of played into that. We'll also hear about uh, songs they uh, released in 1990, like Room a Thousand Years Wide and HIV Baby. We'll jump to 1995 for the uh, curio called the Alive in the Super Unknown CD-ROM. Uh, and, and in fact, it was around that time Kim also tells us when he wrote for uh, Encarta, if you remember the uh, the Windows, uh, what was that, a, it's an encyclopedia, uh, Encarta. And from there, the anniversaries continue for uh, 2000 for the CD release, the now out of print No WTO Combo. Which brings us into the present before the end of it. I do promise you that. Uh, he, he tells us he did have a tour lined up with Dave Alvin, uh, famous of the Blasters. Of course, that got called off as every tour got called off. And I want to know why there's been no solo record from Kim to this point. He wrote a lot of Soundgarden's early songs. So what's kept him from doing that, from, from making that jump? In, and will he in the future? So let's jump into it. Without further ado, it's Kyle Meredith. With Kim Thiel of Soundgarden. Uh, I, I gotta say, first off, uh, it's of course a huge honor to be talking to you here. Um, Soundgarden is a band that changed my life, uh, and I've, I've loved watching what you've been doing through the years. Uh, so thanks for taking the time to do this cool. call today. And and it's interesting because when I was looking up some of the anniversary stuff, you know, I came across the Screaming Like Fop compilation, and it's turning 30. It would have been uh, 30 years old, but it's it's sort of cheating, right? Because th- this is really two EPs that were released uh, years earlier, so it's technically not the big round anniversary, right. but it is. <laughs> so Yeah, exactly. Screaming Life was released in 87, so that would make it about almost 33 years, and Fop was released in 88. Of course, they had different producers, different engineers, but Screaming Life, we considered an album already because it was our first record, and back then in the 80s, new bands, uh, especially new bands in, in coming out of the indie alternative or punk rock scenes would put out EPs, and that would be their initial album. Uh, you know, Big Black did that, Butthole Surfers did that, Sonic Youth did that, Meat Puppets, Minutemen, mm-hmm. on and on. So this is our, you know, sixth song, Screamy Life was six songs. They're all produced by Jack and Dino. It's on a distinct label, you know, Sub Pop. Well, soon to be huge label, right? right? <laughs> but at that point, we thought, hey, this, this is our debut record. We recorded enough material for an album. But uh, Bruce, I think Jonathan wanted to do a full album, but Bruce, Bruce wisely thought it was good to do a shorter record, do like anywhere from four to five songs we push to get six songs on it so we can have three on each side just mm. yeah make it symmetrical i suppose <laughs> and the goal and the goal was we wanted to get as much of our material out there as possible they wanted to be able to have a great retail price point you know the price point of an ep to introduce this new band and uh along the label you know i think around the same time sub pop put out dry as a bone by green river just mm-hmm. a little bit before screaming life and I consider that an album as well, but it was like a five-song punk rock EP, you know, punk rock album. Right. They would 
just call EPs. So, yeah. But they officially made an album by pairing it with Fox in 1990 for CD. That's the weird thing, because both of those EPs came out on vinyl, but they're compiled for CD and cassette in 90 and did not come out for vinyl again until um, a couple years back. <laughs> I, I think, i got to correct myself, I think in the 90s at some point they did a limited edition like collector's vinyl run, but I think of just Screaming Life, but I think the compilation of Fop and Screaming Life together was compiled for vinyl for the first time back when we threw it together in, what was that, 2014, I think, 2015? Well, it, it, it's interesting in that regard then, too, because... If you were just hearing those EPs for the first time once they were compiled to CD, they're, they're different sounds. I mean, this this is a different band from one, you know, selection to the next. It, it, not an entirely different band, obviously, but but there but there's there's a difference between Screaming Life Five. That's the way I heard it. I when I heard it, you know, this I didn't. I, I probably went and found those. Um, I mean, I lived in I grew up in rural Kentucky, so I, I know I didn't hear about you guys until Super Unknown. So I would have heard it after that, and I remember hearing this record not knowing the story behind it and going well this is an interesting you know switch of gears suddenly <laughs> you know this is <laughs> yep. audiences to find you like that it's um I, I don't know if that's ever a worry on you you just kind of let it go as it's going to go but that's an interesting way to to have your music received anyway yeah that's that's why on the cd i think they emphasize screaming life in terms of the packaging then list of the pop songs as a bonus um we definitely pre- and still to this day see Screaming Life as an album. You know, it was original, all original material produced by Jack and Dino. Sub Pop debut, that is the album for Sub Pop and Jack and Dino. Always believing that in the future we'd release the rest of the material we recorded in, you know, in some capacity. That was what was understood. Fop is more of a single, even though they're both kind of roughly marketed as EPs. Fop was definitely built around the song Fop, which was a cover Mm-hmm. And then a remix that Steve Fisk did. And we threw one Soundgarden original, and we did another cover as a lark of, of our peers. You know, we did a Green River cover mm-hmm. um, for fun. And we, so we just saw that as correctly as an EP or a maxi single, I think they may have called it. But EPs were basically maxi singles. They're built around one song. Right. You, know, they, you might add an edit or, or another another version. So that, that correctly is an EP, whereas we're screaming life for for almost all purposes of the vinyl, you know, I mean, album. <laughs> when we put it together, we see it as Screaming Life, and then this bonus right. EP added or bonus single added. Well, I, you know, I, I will take the opportunity to talk about 1990, some some actual stuff that happened in, in that year for the anniversary. But since we're here, a, a couple of the songs I wanted to to hit on, though, you know, with those first singles being on there with Hunted Down and and the other and the flip with Nothing to Say. I mean, so much has been written about the sound that came out of the area that you all were doing. But in that moment, were you aware uh, as a band, even as an individual, of how different you all did sound from everything else that was really going on in the world? Yeah, we we knew that we were we knew that we were kind of we were aware that we were kind of quirky post-punk. And then we started incorporating these more psychedelic elements and the psychedelic elements, the way we presented them was heavier so we realized that we somehow, through a, through a side door, had kind of redefined elements of, I guess at the time we might have thought, gee, we're grabbing some heavy metal elements, maybe classic rock elements, which was what the journalists would eventually throw in these classic rock references. And we thought, well, Black Flag had done this, the Melvins, uh, St. Vitus. 
there, there, there was a thing going on with people our age who were kind of into punk rock, but kind of reaching back a little bit further to some of the guilty pleasures that might have informed them as kids or teenagers, mm-hmm. you know, things like Sabbath or Zeppelin or, you know, God. <laughs> you know, for me, I was I was listening to that stuff when I was, you know, junior high or high school, that by the time I'm 16 or 17, out come the Sex Pistols and Ramones. That happened to be the time that I kept learning to play guitar. It was just, the timing was ridiculous, coinciding with my age, with the pop culture age, you know, uh, of both rock and roll and of the baby boomer, a Generation X demographic. It all just kind of fit. It's like, wow, you know. And then in the, in the mid-80s, we kind of were doing what we... Soundgarden was doing what we did, and I think the other bands, Green River, Melbourne, Malfunction, they're all, to some degree, informed in their early years by classic rock, and then kind of came into being musicians as kind of, you know, punk rock guys or post-punk rock guys, and kind of started dipping back into the things you'd shed as kids with with Zeppelin and Sabbath and stuff like that, and Kiss. There was a there's a kiss thing going around here too. I remember that. Yeah, I was waiting for you to say that one. I knew, I knew, I knew you talked about it when you were younger. Yeah, it, it it is interesting though because I think that's how it happens most of the time. Bands sort of just stumble on sounds, but most bands, not all of them, but most bands are emulating either their heroes or what they're hearing on the radio currently. And I think that's what's always fascinated me about the few uh, that have within those parameters still found their way to something new and, and, and hearing, even hearing now, you know, going back and hearing those, those that first single with Hunted Down and, and Nothing to Say, it's like you, there's nothing to compare it to exactly, you know, what was happening at the time. And I, you know, I, I wasn't, I wasn't, in the, I wasn't working at that point. I, w- I was much younger, but um, I can't imagine, you know, being a critic at the time or, an, or a listener, a fan or whatever, hearing that for the first time and going, huh. <laughs> you know, it's it's like we would have done years <laughs> later when uh, when Kid A would have came out or something like that. Like, well, this is not what I was expecting. You know, it's it's just one of those moments, right? It, yeah, I you know I don't I don't think there was ever a time where we were consciously emulating you know any particular genre or sound. I mean, we we were certainly playing what we were familiar with. You know, what we learned as we learned our instruments. As I was learning how to play guitar, you know. I probably the first riff I learned might have been Smoke on the Water by Deep Purple. And I wouldn't be alone in that. There's probably mm-hmm. thousands of people that were like that. But then I went on and learned Ramones and Sex Pistol songs, the Devo songs. So it's, there's something, there's a way which you become familiar with your instrument. There's a way you become familiar with your turntable or your car stereo. And that's kind of what we were, we weren't trying to do that. It just was kind of what we knew and how we communicated with each other. Um, it was sort of part of that culture or the subculture that we had kind of defined ourselves as individuals and found ourselves in as friends you know mm-hmm. i remember if there was if, you know if there was an influence it might have been from some of our peers you know seeing bands like the melvins or malfunction going from really fast to kind of slow and grooving and you know and black flag doing something similar saying but it's it, i guess it acknowledged that the parameters for punk rock were a lot broader than we may have allowed it to have been initially, you know, in the in the early 80s or late 70s. So I, to, to go back to the question you asked a few minutes ago, I think we knew it sounded different, mostly because people would point that out. But I think to us it was very natural. It's kind of what we listened to in a weird amalgam, you know, it's just, <laughs> right. You're playing Bauhaus and playing, you know, Black Flag and playing the Meat Puppets and then playing Sabbath. It just was part of, you know, 
who we all were, or, or certainly part of what Chris and Hero and I was. So it, it, with all of that context, the one song I really do want to ask about then is Little Joe, because that's always been a curio to me. Where does that come from in, the, in, in all of this? <laughs> so that was weird. That was a song instrumentally that I'd written before, you know, in my head before I picked up a guitar. I remember describing it to Chris and Hero. I remember it described it dynamically. It's like, well, you know, you have this kind of wiry sort of riff winding around, maybe a little bit Eastern. And then you kind of get to like more of a, you have this space with bass in it, you know, and just kind of like do these harmonic things, which I'd done before, you know, in a lot of our, a lot of our songs. And so just kind of keep it sort of ambient space, even make it kind of heavy, which is what we're about. And so then I, Chris was a, at the time, Chris had been our drummer, but he was very much involved in arrangements from the perspective of a drummer and he's and now and as a singer, you know, as well as he's writing the lyrics. But I think they asked me to illustrate what I meant, picked up the guitar and I go, Okay, something like this. I did something wiry and then I kind of <laughs> moved over to those three chords, left left some space for the bass and define itself. It's like and then it does this and then we go to this dynamic section. So the song was arranged dynamically. Mm-hmm. And how I saw um, in, in, the, in the way I described, you know, and then the parts were kind of written around the dynamic arrangement, you know. So at the end, we'll just kind of go into these solos and kind of jam. So uh, that's how that one came about. The fact that it has that kind of weird rhythmic thing, I probably attribute that to the way Hero and Matt played. It was supposed to be a little bit more wiry and, and eastern, but it, it certainly has a bit of both. So yeah, it's. It's, it is distinctly different from the other stuff. I think Chris's vocals kind of had a bit of a, because he's a drummer, he mm-hmm. certainly had that rhythmic sense to the melody line, and it kind of was, I don't, oh God, I don't want to at all say it has any hip-hop-isms, <laughs> but because it's, the vocals are kind of rhythmically oriented as well, it, it, was, it, was, it was weird for us, but we liked it. <laughs> yeah. So, you know. This record isn't what I'd call a fun record. It's a cool record. It's an awesome record. That's a fun song, is what it ends up being. That's the fun song on a cool <laughs> record, you know, or something like that. And the, yeah, I, I want to bring it up. everything else is kind of dark. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you, you mentioned Matt there, too. And, and, and that was another part of it, too, because, you know, now that I, you know, can hear what Matt did in, in with you in Soundgarden and then what he brought to Pearl Jam, it was a lot about time signatures. He especially brought that to the Pearl Jam crew later on and, and shifted what they did. But it was, you know, it started as a Soundgarden thing. How important, I mean, was that actually part of your conversations, like these shifting time signatures, these odd numbers that were put together? Well, you know, we were doing that before, Matt. We were doing that with Chris when Chris was our drummer. We, we were a three-piece, Chris and Hero and I, because that's kind of the way I wrote, kind of the way Hero wrote. We didn't, we weren't really aware of the time signature until we were done writing something, and then someone would say, "That's kind of weird." Usually, it might, might be Chris would say, "That's in five, and Hero would sit there trying to count it out, and we'd have a bunch of beer in us trying to like count this thing out. Oh, is it five or is it seven? <laughs> oh, let's, well, let me try it again. And, and we would figure that out after the fact because we would think it felt weird or someone would, we'd play it live and someone would come up and go, that song you do in 5-4, what's it called? And we'd have to think, what song do we do in 5-4? <laughs> but with Matt, we, we consciously were soliciting somebody who was part of our scene. He played, played with Skinyard. We knew him. We knew he was like one of the two best drummers in our scene easily. We knew that he liked us. And we knew that he had this independence of his four limbs and that he could play the weird stuff that we used to write. Now, in between, we had a drummer named Scott Sunquist. Mm-hmm. 
he was not so comfortable with the fives and sevens that we did a lot, but he was, he had a swing sensibility. So he played in fours and threes and sixes really well. And that's kind of what happened. We went from quirky uh, post-punk to kind of be more psychedelic and groovy and heavy and jammy with Scott, who had that swing sensibility. With Matt, he brought back this ability to interpret the weird stuff that we were always that we were always naturally writing, you know, the, the stuff in fives and sevens and things like that. I just, I mean, it made again such a, a unique sound uh, with all of you, uh, you know, and and to further us, you know, actually, actually into 1990 because you did have releases during that year. Um, you know, I know you're on tour for Loud Love. The Loudest Love EP came out uh, with the Louder Than Live VHS, and I think I still have to call it that. I think it's the only VHS at this point. Yeah. Uh, which which I do have. Come Together was a cover on that EP. I've heard Chris. You know, I, I have talked to Chris. Uh, I had talked to Chris a few times in the past. He had a very vocal love of the Beatles. Was that shared with everybody? Because hearing you talk about the obvious things, Zeppelin, Sabbath, you know, Kiss, and all that, were the Beatles also, you know, a, a group thing for you? Uh, yeah, the Beatles were huge when I was definitely a kid. I think the first album I ever got was the Beatles' "Hey Jude," which was a compilation of some singles. And then I think when I was in fifth grade for Christmas, I got Sgt. Pepper's and Revolver, and they're just amazing. I actually, I think by by the time I was in sixth grade, I bought like a black light at Sears and, and screwed it in. It was like a, you know, the shape of a traditional light bulb. So I just kind of unscrewed the light bulb in my room and screwed the black light and listened to the Beatles. So it was very important. I think I went a number of different directions by listening, by getting the metal and then punk and then, and then stuff like you know, Perubu and Chrome. So it was kind of leaving the Beatles behind because there was so much stuff coming out in the late 70s. And I think Chris kind of held on to the Beatles a little bit longer as as someone who's writing you know, vocal, more vocal-wise. I think he was oriented more towards the Beatles and their sense of melody. And I, at this point, am getting into guitars, but, and, and, you know, weird noises and, and you know, and, and dynamic approaches to songwriting and arrangement. I would definitely say the Beatles had its place with with a Ben, you know, with Hero, with Matt. It was, it was definitely a big thing. Well, I think it might have been strongest with Chris, mm-hmm. but, but that's not to downplay the fact that it was the biggest thing in my life for years. Right, right. Uh, by the way, I wanted to mention the other reason why we got Matt was because he could write songs. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just that he was the greatest drummer in the world, but he could write songs. And we wanted a drummer. We wanted everyone in the band to be a songwriter. We wanted everyone to contribute. We thought that would just create a, a larger set from which to draw from um, that our albums would be stronger that everyone can contribute to the to the particular insider vision that, that someone would have and it, did, it worked, everyone would add their two cents people would add their criticisms songs would be adjusted and, it'd be, and we could make things the best sound garden song I mean that happened really quickly too I know uh, the single that came out that year yeah. you know, Room a Thousand Years Wide that was that was you and Matt uh, on that one. Uh, I think HIV Baby was also on that one. So that's funny you would say that because it was my idea that on HIV that on that single because I wrote the lyrics for Matt's music on Room a Thousand Years Wide. The flip side, we had Chris writing lyrics for Ben's music on on HIV Baby. But the actuality is, I wrote some of the riffs on HIV Baby too. But we thought, I thought it would be cool if one side said File Cameron and the other side said Cornell Shepard. Oh, yeah. And so I took my name off of HIV Baby for the purpose of that single. But um, the the riff 
underneath the guitar solo, the genre, da, 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 that, that's me. Um, but everything else is very signature band. So yeah, so we were we were very conscious of that fact to show that kind of uh, democratic and and versatile nature of the band in terms of songwriting. Which would uh, show itself so exactly. much on the future uh, albums too, because there were a lot of sounds that would come through uh, in those records, and you know, in some of them. You know, in those poppy moments and some of those spaced out moments, like I, I would say, especially on, you know, some of those singles right there. And if you don't mind, I, I'll pull up five years because, you know, we talk about big anniversaries like the 25th, the uh, Alive and the Super Unknown CD-ROM thing came out. I mean, and, and that had some yeah. weird stuff yeah. on it, too. Wasn't that that was like Jerry Garcia's finger, right? That was the really bizarre one that I remember yep. from that one. Yep. Well, by the way, all these all those little loose ends or 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 what we call b-sides mm-hmm. the things that were compiled on on eps or international releases or singles or movie soundtracks we put up that's the significance of echo of miles right where we where we collected like, there's 50 songs that we collect i always had kept the track of these songs you know as a wish list for a future album as 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 it grew really large because the label always wanted bonus material for you know for Europe or Australia wanted an extra song you know for the CD or for the, the back the single is there is there an, another song that you guys have and they always wanted this so I kept a running tally because these were sing these were songs that were not on the Soundgarden album and when we ended up with like a dozen or so of them we thought you know this is a Soundgarden album that is thrown across the world in all these different formats. We need to compile these together and put them out. And that was something I wanted to do around the time the band broke up for the first time, 97, mm-hmm. and finally got to do with Echo Miles. And just, I know I'm maybe digressing a bit, but just to bring it, right, bring it back here for a second, you mentioned um, the Loudest Love EP, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, I, and then you mentioned Alive in the Super Unknown. Now, those were not, those are not band initiated. You know, those are very much EPs in the sense of them being label-generated samplers. Screaming Life is a Soundgarden album. Fop is a Soundgarden original. That's something that you know we we performed and record, you know recorded and released new songs. Uh, Loudest Love, I think, was compiled initially. It might have been for an overseas EP that was put out here. It was kind of compiled as a sampler by the label. And then they came to us and said. Do you have any other songs that aren't on the album? Mm-hmm. And we were always resistant to doing that, but we knew we needed to do that. So we said, okay, someday these songs will end up on a Soundgarden album. So Loudest Love, every time I read Wikipedia, I read our discography, and I see those references to EPs like Loudest Love and, and Alive in the Super Unknown, I think ah, those are not Soundgarden <laughs> records. Those are, those are label records. Yeah. And Alive in the Super Unknown, I think the goal there was to uh, showcase some of the new, you know, increasingly popular digital, you know, right. tech. And I think there's some really crude, rudimentary animation in Alive in the Super Unknown. Uh, I think, like, there's some Easter eggs and a weird little menu that you could... It's, it's really just kind of simple. <laughs> and you could, but we, it, it was something the label wanted to do with, with, with some of the new technologies. We'll, we'll put out a the CD-ROM, right? So it has it has video content and, and a menu that you can kind of navigate. And I think there might have been some ridiculous video game included, right? There's some kind of like version of Breakout 
I hope I have the right title, but, but Alive in the Super Unknown is a CD-ROM, correct? Mm-hmm. Correct, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's audio content, visual content. I mm-hmm. think they wanted to include some interactive content. So I think if you went into the menu, you could access, you know, around that time, you know, Super the song Super Unknown from uh, the album, mm-hmm. right. <laughs> the uh, uh, eponymous album, <laughs> um, they did, this was not, we did not generate this, but people at the label asked permission. They wanted to try some kind of digital animation, and they did some digital thing, animation for the song Super Unknown with our permission, you know, and, and we looked at the final version just to see, you know, it was a bit of an experiment on their part and our part. And MTV actually aired it. I remember watching MTV airing this weird, crappy digital <laughs> animation for for on Headbangers Ball. So it's like, okay, well, so in a way, it was released as a video, and we considered the song "Super Unknown" as a as a single. You know, at, at that point, even though it was primarily promotional and experimental. So yeah, around that time, they're doing that DVDs. Uh, I mean, the idea of a CD. You know, CDs were increasing in popularity. Um, video games were becoming huge in popularity. Do you remember um, Microsoft had an encyclopedia called Encarta? Oh, right, it, yeah, absolutely. Around then. I did some audio for that. I They tracked some guitar noises I did to become page turners. Like if you move from one screen to another, wow. you just like... <laughs> No, that's in some of the pages. Yeah, it was. You see, that belongs online so somewhere was, because I don't think I've ever read that. That that belongs somewhere. That's... <laughs> <laughs> so that was kind of an era of experimentation with these new formats and trying to see what people are interested in, and we were willing guinea pigs. But these weren't. This was not so much band generated, but it was band approved. Mm-hmm. So you know, generally we don't think of alive in the super unknown or. Or loudest love, you know, they're they're part of the Soundgarden discography, but they weren't an original, you know, recording or release on our on our part. It was it was more of a, a sampler yeah. of the label's part. Now, now to to finish off the uh, the big round number tour, uh, just the other day was the 20th anniversary of the No WTO combo release, which I think is out of print right now, or or it has been, and it's not something I'd thought about in a long time, but. Uh, I know that was really specifically, that was one show that you guys did there. Could there have been more shows? Was there ever supposed to be any more than what happened? No, I, th- I think we got to, I think Jello, you know, contacted Chris and wanted to get a band together to play for the WTO, um, what ended up being riots. But at the time, mm-hmm. it was, there was going to be some protests. And, and at the time, Chris and I had been playing together uh, along with uh, Alfredo Hernandez from the last incarnation of Caius and, and the original incarnation of, of Queens of the Stone Age. So we had Fredo and a Bubba Dupree from Boyd at Earth 18. The four of us were jamming at the time, and then Jello contacted Chris, and Chris called me and said, hey, you should play guitar in this thing. And because of you know, generally shared political sentiment, um, and then got Gina on drums, and that was that. I, I don't, I think there might have been some discussion of playing some other shows and it just didn't really materialize because, mm-hmm. because it's such a dramatic and somewhat traumatic, you know, at least civilly for the, you know, for the for Seattle that that whole incident. It, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it had repercussions that, that extended, you know, many months. Um, there was it was it was pretty crazy. Right, right. So that was that interesting little moment in the discography right there. So uh, you know, I'll, I'll bring it. Uh, I'll. We'll we'll end here in the present. Uh, you know, in the past little while, you've been doing uh, the MC50 stuff, and 
and and I know everything in the world is on pause right now, but I'm just kind of curious, like, what's in your musical future? Is, is there going to be more of that stuff? Do you do you have anything that you're looking forward to at this point? There's there's a number of things that are on hold, and a number of things that are proposed. I think recently, I think oh, was it like maybe even last year actually, I, I played, I did a guitar solo, and and uh, on. <laughs> I think it's coming out by now. Um, Brian Posehn, the, uh, the actor and comedian, oh yeah, has put put out a a metal record, and uh, Scott Ian plays on it. And I do a solo on one song, and uh, uh, Brendan Small from Metalocalypse is on it. So, and a bunch of other guys. That's just what popped in my head right now. I have some interest and in offers from some other guys who have been doing stuff in their home studios, and they're, hey Kim, you want to throw something on this? And it's, sure, but. I don't have an access to my home to a home studio, and we're locked down. I have right. to go to a friend's studio. I I I've been living in a new apartment the past year, and I don't have. Um, it's not set up for recording. So there are things that all those things are on hold, and there is a there's a. I I have to hesitate a little bit here because I'm not sure what has come out or what hasn't. There was a tour I was going to do in April with Dave Alvin. Of, of, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, to play some guitar in a project that Dave Alvin had come up with. You, you might you probably know Dave from the Blasters right, and the right. Flesh Eaters, and that was all ready to go, and that was shut down. You know, in, in March at some point we had to you know concede that that wouldn't that tour wouldn't happen. And there's some other live shows that are being con- there's some other live opportunities that are being considered, and some recording that's that's happened. But I'll wait until the the principles behind those recordings make make announcements because I, I I'm merely a guest in these situations. What, so what about not being a guest? Because you have been a songwriter in the past. You wrote songs for Soundgarden. What stopped the 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 Kim solo record from ever happening? <laughs> I think there's probably a lot of reasons. I think I think at the time I was just I I was really fed up with a creative pursuit. You know, songwriting turning into constant meetings with accountants and lawyers and managers and record company of people it it just wasn't interested and when the band broke up you know i was initially interested in going back and and playing recreationally which is what i was able to do play recreationally Mm -hmm. and it was really hesitant towards the idea of of cobbling together a professional you know infrastructure Uh, there are some holdbacks to it when when Soundgarden broke up in the late 90s, all the people we knew at A&M were eventually a year or two later, A&M was bought, everyone we knew there was fired. And then the label was kind of subsumed into Universal. So we had no label. None of the people we worked with at the label were still there. Our manager, uh, Susan Silver, mm-hmm. who was, was our long-term manager and integral, integral to a uh, the growth and success of, of Soundgarden and Chris's, you know, um, solo career. She and Chris took, the, she took time off and became a mother. So her management company ended up being a post office box and a voicemail. So, <laughs> there was no band. There was no record label. There was no management. And I thought, fine with me. I was kind of getting tired of, you know, accountants and, and lawyers and managers. I didn't want to go and dig up management. I didn't want to go call up the lawyers. I didn't want to have to go and look for labels. So I just took a 12-pack over and hung out with my friends, and we'd play guitar, and we'd record, we'd record songs and riffs, and, 
and with the hope that maybe someday it would be something. But I, I enjoyed playing recreationally and was resisting the professional thing because there's there's just too much that was discouraging that had become discouraging about it. That's probably the main reason. Um, another reason is that anything solo, I, because so much of Soundgarden sound is born of my aesthetic, mm-hmm. that anything I had done, because it's, we're a guitar band, I'm the guitarist, I wrote all the original, all the guitar parts and all the, all the riffs in the original incarnations of the band. Almost all the music is written by me from 84 you know, on until Hero wrote a lot too, but then Chris started writing more as he got more comfortable with playing guitar. And Matt came in, and Matt, same thing. He was learning guitar and writing songs, introducing stuff, and bringing their drummer sensibility to things. But anything I would have done would have sounded like Soundgarden without the greatest singer in the world and the greatest drummer in the world. So that was a little bit discouraging, too. It's like, why would I want to do a B-grade Soundgarden? (laughs) (laughs) So I thought, ah, fuck it. I'll I'll come to the B-grade Soundgarden, then try to find a manager and a lawyer and some accountants. Screw all this. In the um, in, in the current yeah. era where there's so much you know self-releasing and and people can kind of just I'm just saying you know as someone who has admired what you've done musically for decades um, you know maybe hopefully that'll find a way out that you'll find a way I, I would love to hear it oh. if it ever happens well well definitely I mean after after Soundgarden ended this time I made a mental note of no not this time I'm not gonna I'm not going to uh, semi-retire. And of course, I've done a lot of the work with the with the MC, you know, five anniversary stuff, which has been a lot of fun and really encouraging you know, to be on stage with both guys. But I, I have a different attitude now, and uh, better, at, <laughs> more willing to deal with the, the the side of the music business that had that had uh, caused me to feel alienated from the creative process. Kim, thank you so much for uh, for taking the time to talk today and, and going through the whole history lesson. Well, I so appreciate it. Well, thank you, and thank you for being so knowledgeable that, that suggests to me that you're fans. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Bye-bye. take care. And my thanks, Kim Thile of Soundgarden. Again, it's the 30th anniversary of the Screaming Life FOP compilation. Uh, do check that out, uh, or just play any Soundgarden you want to, because there's never a bad time for that. Thanks to you as well. Thanks to you for checking out this episode. Thanks to you for subscribing. If, if you're not a subscriber, I do hope you got inspired by this one to click that button wherever you're listening from. Of course, that does include iTunes and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts from. After that, head to WFPK.com. Org, where I do a show Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern. It's an hour full of song premieres and music news, anniversary spins, and bonus interviews as well. Again, that's WFPK.org. Consequence of Sound has your music and film news. You can also find me uh, just about any social media platform, all the big ones anyway, at Kyle Meredith. Hope you uh, like and follow along there. And that does it for another edition. I'm Kyle Meredith. I'll see you next time. Consequence Podcast Network. I'm Lior Phillips, host of This Must Be The Gig. We're a weekly podcast that documents everything about the world of live music. Speaking with choreographers, costume and set designers, the people who run beloved venues and festivals, and, of course, speaking with musicians about that one gig that changed their lives. Get your peek behind the curtain at consequenceofsound.net 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.